Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. And um, I am particularly thrilled with the guest that I have for today. Um, truly one of the great scholar practitioners of our age, in, in my opinion. And I'm deeply honored and humbled um, that he would take the time to chat with us a little bit today. So I will give Alan his formal introduction, then I'll um, plant some seeds for directions where I'd like to take our conversation. Um, and as you'll see, there will be no shortage of rich material to cover. So Alan Wallace is a prominent voice in the emerging discussion, emerging discussion between contemporary Buddhist thinkers and scientists who question materialist assumptions of their 20th century paradigms. He left his college studies in 1971 and moved to Dharmasala, India, to study Tibetan Buddhism, medicine, and language. He was ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and over 14 years as a monk, he studied with and translated for several of the generation's greatest lamas. In 1984, he resumed his Western education at Amherst College, where he studied physics and the philosophy of science. He then applied that background to his PhD research at Stanford on the interface between Buddhism and Western science and philosophy. Since 1987, he has been a frequent translator and contributor to meetings between the Dalai Lama and prominent scientists, and he has written and translated more than 40 books. Along with his scholarly work, Alan is regarded as one of the West's preeminent meditation teachers and retreat guides. He is the founder and director of the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies, and is the motivating force behind the, develop, be, behind the development of the Center for Contemplative Research in Tuscany, Italy. So Alan, really thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to chat with us. And um, you may not remember, but we've crossed paths a number of times over the years. I, I uh, ran into you a little bit when you were doing the now famous Shamatha Project at Chambala Mountain mm -hmm. Center. Yes, um, yes, indeed. We also crossed paths several times when you were gracious enough to do some presentations at Naropa University and the like. Um, I remember, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and your work altogether um, has been with me literally for decades. And I have to say that your intellectual rigor, the scope and depth of what you do, um, really places you in one of the categories of uh, intellectual and spiritual heroes in my life. And, and I have to say, one of the things that really touches me the most, Alan, is your absolutely fearless attitude in taking on the high priests of science. Um, <laughs> you, you, have, you have amazing verve and fearlessness, gusto to go after these um, this new religion, which it really really is. I mean, well, that's what it is, yeah. Isn't it this belief system that people who are blinded by their own brilliance take as irrefutable dogma? And I so delight the conversations you've had with you know high-end theoretical physicists like Sean Carroll and the like. And I continue to um, savor everything you um, do when you uh, kind of challenge the Western materialistic paradigm, point out its blind spots, um, and then just you know have the gumption and wherewithal to go after it. So um, there is so much I'd like to discuss with you. With uh, you know my guests, I often take these uh, teachings as, as deep as we possibly can. And with you, that means you know to the very uh, ground of this groundless thing we call reality. And, and what I think might be a little bit helpful, Ellen, and I'll, I'll start off with a couple questions for you is to just situate a little bit the context in which these discussions are taking place. We launched a site some months ago um, called Nightclub, which is just a platform for supporting people in what I am now playfully calling the nocturnal meditations. And what we do is we have six kind of parallel 
tracks that run in this kind of um, pedagogy. We say at the back of the nightclub is what we call night school. And the first track is the science and medicine of sleep. The second track is the daily um, support practices like meditation and the practice of illusory form. Um, and then lucid dreaming in, in a real way is the kind of the center of this mandala. But then it evolves in a kind of Hegelian sense is kind of transcendent include progression that I like to look at the nocturnal practices with um, dream yoga, sleep yoga, luminosity yoga, and then bardo yoga. Um, and so with that said, I, you are absolutely the perfect person to talk to because your work is completely resonant with our central underlying mission statement, you could say, which is the use of dreams as almost an excuse to explore the nature of mind and reality. Um, and as I was reviewing many of your books um, just over these last couple of days, I was uh, struck by how often you use the dream analogy, the dream state, and uh, dream yoga, lucid dreaming as a way, in fact, to explore these finer dimensions of mind. And so before we get into the kind of the deeper, um, you could almost say philosophical, theoretical end of this sort of stuff, I am curious what role has lucid dreaming, dream yoga um, played in your life um, because, you know, in addition to the many books where you reference it, you devoted one entire book to this topic. So I'm curious where these nocturnal practices are stationed in your life today. So when I think of dream yoga, I think very classically, that is in accordance with traditional texts. And I, I first received teachings on dream yoga from Gyapshya Zonamachi, but back in 1978 in Switzerland. Um, but, and that was within the context of the six yogas of Naropa, he taught us, gave a transmission on the whole. But it was really in 1990 uh, from the Nyingma Lama, uh, the Venerable Gyaturamachi, Goman yeah. Gyaturamachi, that I first received teachings. It really struck me as accessible, inviting. These are for you now, it's not just a mental imprint for some later time and later, later lifetime. And so, and since then, I've received further teachings from him in, in the book Natural Liberation on the six bardos, mm -hmm. including the bardo of dreaming and so forth. So that's kind of, that's my, my context, my access to the theory and practice of dream yoga. And then just again, as a sidelight, uh, during my gra graduate studies at Stanford from Oh, 1989 to 1995, it was during that time that I struck up a friendship and then a professional collaboration with Stephen Leberge. Of course. He was doing his PhD in the psychology department, but it was an inter it was a independent PhD. Um, and then, so, and I've been interested in dream yoga for a very long time. He learned that I was doing my dissertation on and had some background in shamatha. And he saw the relevance uh, of developing attention skills and very briefly put, relaxation, a sense of ease of the body and mind, a sense of, of composure, of stillness, of unification, stability, and then finally clarity, vividness, luminosity of awareness, and how the cultivation of these different aspects of attention could be enormously relevant for uh, the practice of lucid dreaming. And so we, over, over the ensuing years, we think it was six times we led 10-day retreats at Stanford and, and Hawaii on different right. occasions. And so that was, you know, that's kind of my background to come to this. Um, but if we go deeper, I was first introduced to the middle way view, the Madhyamaka, back in 1972, when I was a very young student at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. And it was in the context there was Lamrim. And when we came to the Madhyamaka, the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena, all phenomena as arising as dependently related events, 
and in between formal meditative equipoise sessions, viewing all phenomena as dreamlike, I would say my real practice of dream yoga began then. Yes. And so I said classically, I'm going to go back to my basically my first sentence, I think. Classically, when I think of dream yoga, and even for that matter, lucid dreaming, uh, which I integrated in my book, Dreaming uh, Dream Yourself Awake, um, I think of it, I don't think of it simply as nocturnal practice, mm-hmm. nocturnal practice, um, but rather as divided rather evenly, or even I might weight it more heavily to the daytime dream yoga and then the nighttime dream yoga. Yeah, beautiful. And, and, and daytime dream yoga is really, it is Vipassana. It really is Vipassana with the orientation, the ambience, the context of moving towards lucidity within the while, while sleeping in the dream state, but also moving towards, as you well know, uh, the possibility of becoming lucid in the deepest, uh, the, the dreamless deep sleep, dreamless deep sleep state. Mm-hmm. And both of these have enormous relevance. They're covered in natural liberation in this book. Mm-hmm. So I would say this, this when we take these both of these into account, then I mentioned before in our, in our kind of preamble conversation, that the, really the central stream of my daily meditative practice uh, for oh, almost 30 years by now has been this current, kind of an un, unbroken current or a continuum of shamatha, vipassana, and then cutting through or texture, which is the quintessential uh, Dzogchen practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in this context then, all of this is from, in my worldview, then the practice of daytime and nighttime dream yoga is couched within the Madhyamaka view, couched within the Dzogchen view. Yes. So this is utterly central. So you ask what role does it play? Well, uh, shamatha is just splashing around in the, in the shallow end of the pool. If you don't go beyond shamatha, if you're just doing shamatha for the sake of shamatha, then as is widely accepted, I think universally in Buddhism, that nobody even reaches the path, let alone achieves, achieves liberation or awakening without going beyond shamatha, into vipassana, motivation into bodhicitta, if you're following the Mahayana path, and then into, in, into really identifying pristine awareness if you're going into the Mahamudra or Dzogchen paths. So we can see then central to this triad of shamatha, vipassana, and let's say textured or identifying pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. Vipassana is in the core, and dream yoga is simply a variation on the theme or an expression of the teachings of Vipassana. So nighttime dream yoga is simply nighttime Vipassana, and daytime dream yoga is daytime Vipassana, in my view. Yeah, that's, that's just fantastic. And I could not agree more with you. It's really beautifully and articulately delivered there, Alan. And to me, as you know, His Holiness, even like um, His Holiness Dalai Lama in um, Waking, Dreaming, and sleeping, I believe, is a title. He talks sleeping, about dreaming, oh, sorry, sleeping, sleeping, dreaming, dying. Sleeping, dreaming, sleeping, dreaming, dying. I remember yeah. that conference very, very well. That's uh-huh. right. You were you were one of the translators, and I and that's right. I conflate right. that title with uh, Evan Thompson's more recent book, Waking, Dreaming. Right. He, well, Evan Thompson's been part of mine in life for a long time, so he maybe nibbled away at that, at that title. <laughs> exactly. In fact, he said as much. But as His Holiness says, and what you're intimating here is that um, really in so many ways dream yoga circumambulates these teachings on emptiness and and um definitely yeah. I, I think there's no doubt about that and and that's where you're um, kind of dovetailing that into the middle way teachings the teachings on the jamaka and all of them really in the service so to speak of dzogchen is, is completely resonant with my own approach but for the listeners who may not be as facile as we are 
with terms like shamatha and vipassana. And of course, in, in, often, Alan, when I think of you, I, I think of you in, in the most endearing way as Mr. Shamatha. And I want to yeah. talk, <laughs> and I really want to- Some people call me Shamatha junkie, but maybe yeah. Mr. Shamatha is a bit nicer. <laughs> Mr. Shamatha is related. And I want to come back to that because not only is this one of your central contributions, I, I think it's absolutely critical as an infrastructure practice for uh, lucid dreaming and dream yoga, um, let alone the, the, the path of awakening altogether. But if you don't mind taking a moment for some of our listeners who may not be as facile with the, the, the term shamatha and vipassana, and tell us briefly, especially within the framework that you're alluding to here, how you define those terms. And then I definitely want to come back and, and unpack with you the critical importance of uh, stabilizing the mind. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, first of all, I, I would say I don't have a view. I, oh, here's my Alan Wallace's special spin on shamatha and vipassana, and my interpretation of vipassana is such and such. I don't have one, but I do for, I think I've been teaching now for 42 years, really a central guiding light for me in teaching um, is give authentic teachings. If you're teaching Buddhism, teach authentic Buddhism. Mm -hmm. If you want to teach your own views, I'm about to teach the Alan Wallace view, and it'll be authentic because whatever I say is going <laughs> is what I believe, you know. But no, I'm not here to teach Alan Wallace's view. Uh, so when I'm teaching, I often teach Theravada. I teach mindfulness of breathing, core applications of mindfulness, four immeasurables. And then I'm really following very closely to the Pali Canon, to the Buddha Gosam, the classic teachings. And so likewise, when we come to Shamadeva Vipassana, uh, this is, these two terms are already defined. And they're really quite, in terms of classic authentic Buddhism, whether Theravada, Indian, Tibetan, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, how do you say, consensus mm -hmm. about the meaning of these terms. And that doesn't mean that people in the 20, 21st century can't come up with their own definitions, but they are coming up with a little kind of feather on the top of the table, and the table's been around for 2,500 years. Right. I think a, a gust of wind is probably going to blow away that, that, that feather, uh, you know, within with a matter of months or years. So, shamatha. Here's classic teachings on shamatha, Theravada, Indian, Tibetan Buddhism, that's very straightforward. The term itself in Sanskrit means serenity, quiescence, tranquility. Uh, ne has, uh, my translation of it would be, um, peace, ne, she is peaceful, and ne is stillness, a peaceful stillness of mind. Calm abiding is fine. This is Jeffrey Hopkins 45 years ago or so. It's certainly, certainly not incorrect. I, I can't remember if making a mistake, frankly. So shamatha, that's just the meaning of the term then. But what the whole genre of shamatha meditations is about, and in the Pali Canon, the Buddha taught 40 different methods, and then we find further in the Mahayana tradition, Vajrayana, further methods in Mahamudra and Dzogchen, what they all have in common is the shamatha is an array of practices designed to develop attention skills. Mm -hmm. It's really straightforward. Now, attention skills then are cultivated by developing single-pointed attention, that's samadhi, by developing mindfulness, which is the Buddhist me meaning is really very different from the modern meaning of moment-to-moment -moment, uh, judgmental awareness. Mm -hmm. Very useful, but not a Buddhist definition, never has been, and it doesn't become Buddhist just by saying so. The Buddhist definition throughout all of Buddhism, all through all the various, various Buddhist cultures throughout Asia, is mindfulness, sati smriti, has a primary connotation of bearing in mind. Mm -hmm. Bearing in mind something with which you're familiar, with which you're acquainted, and bearing it in mind without forgetfulness or distraction. Now, this is a very non-controversial definition, and although there are subtle nuances here and there, in all these languages, Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Mongolian, Chinese, Japanese, in all of these terms, all of these languages that have absorbed Buddhism deeply and for centuries, 
the term that is translated from the sati always has a primary connotation of to bear in mind or to, re re or to recall. So that's a crucial feature that is if you're focusing on something, whether it's focusing on your breath or whether you're, you've just slipped into lucidity in a dream. Mm -hmm. And so now you have lab time in the optimal lab, laboratory, for exploring the nature of the mind because the whole laboratory is made of the mind. That's right. So whatever you look at, it's a configuration, an expression of mind. And of course, there's nothing whatsoever that is physical in a dreamscape. Not, new, not you, not your awareness, not appearances, nothing. And so once you've entered into lucidity, you've recognized the dream as a dream, then I'll show how this relates to shamatha. So maybe I'm, I'm going to wind around a little bit if you don't Oh, mind. cool. Go for it. And, that, and this is, goes back to my initial professional collaboration with Stephen LaBerge. Many, many people, when they have their first lucid dream, they get so excited, they wake themselves up. Right. <laughs> you know, it's a matter of seconds. And right. wow, I'm lucid. Oh, whoops, I'm no longer, now I'm just awake. <laughs> and so the first thing is chill, dude. You know, relax. So you come lucid, take it easy peasy. You know, slip into it, relax, be at ease. But don't jolt yourself out of it because you get so excited. So the first in this triad, this, the, this sequential triad, relaxation, stability, vividness, mm -hmm. is directly relevant to, to developing the skills not, to be, not only to become lucid, but once you're lucid, to not blow it just by getting excited uh, you know, or, or agitated. Yeah. And then secondly, uh, when, once you're in this dream, lucid dreaming laboratory, then like, like an astronomer that gets to go to a world-class observatory, you want to have as much time there as possible. You know, this is solid gold. So once you become lucid in a dream, it just makes sense. You are now in a very precious opportunity to make some very important insights, transformative, revealing of the nature of consciousness and so forth. So wouldn't you like to have greater lab time? And this means maintain two things that are independent variables. And that is one, maintain the continuity of the dream itself so it doesn't just fade out or you don't yep. wake up. And then secondly, as an independent variable, maintain the lucidity. Is you can continue dreaming and slip back into a non-lucid dream. You can also, if you're maintaining lucidity, you can lose the dream, but you can go right, right into lucid, dreamless sleep. So the second quality then would be the ability to maintain that continuity, and that is exactly mindfulness. It's bearing in mind what you wish to attend to without forgetfulness, without distraction. And then thirdly, again, relating shamatha to <coughs> lucid dreaming and dream yoga, the higher the definition, the higher clarity, the vividness, higher resolution, and so forth of your dream, of course, it's just, it's better. It's just yeah. a more vivid experience altogether. And that brings in the third quality that is cultivated explicitly in shamatha. And that is the vividness, the brightness, the luminosity, high resolution, sharp focus of your awareness. And so shamatha in short, that was kind of an elaboration, top, touch, touching on different points. But shamatha in short is developing one's attention skills together with mindfulness, the ability to bear in mind what you're attending to, but also in order to, to sustain these, to, to achieve these, the samadhi, the single-pointedness of attention, and the mindfulness, you need the samprajanya. And it's translated in various ways and I'm not really satisfied with other translations. Mm -hmm. uh, I translate some prajanya or shijana Tibetan as introspection. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason for that, I'm sticking to that, and not clear comprehension or vigilance or alertness or full awareness. I think they all miss the mark. They're not wrong, but they really miss the mark. And the, and the reason for that is this introspection is always, by definition, reflexive. Mm -hmm. 
I can practice mindfulness on your voice, but I can, I can practice samprajanya on my body, my voice, my mind, but not on any, anybody else's body or the external environment and so forth. So we're cultivating mindfulness and introspection, expecting intro reflexively, not just on the mind, but the body, on occasion, the body, on one's speech, when one is speaking, and then, of course, when you're practicing shamatha, is overwhelmingly reflectively attending to the flow of mindfulness so you can recognize as quickly as possible when the flow of attention has veered off into either of the two extremes, and that's laxity, right. loss of clarity and dullness, and excitation or agitation, and that's where you lose it because you become distracted. So this is, if we consider that Vipassana, especially Vipassana on the very nature of the mind, and mm -hmm. Dream Yoga is an expression of Vipassana on the nature of mind, that if we consider the passion and nature of mind is a contemplative science, and the, the object of the science is the space of the mind, the space of awareness, and whatever mental events take place within that space, including dreams, then the passion is like astronomy, and shamatha is like a telescope. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's really it. And so, it, and the telescope, and I, I like the, the largeness of it, rather than thinking of a contemplative laboratory, a contemplative observatory, because the space of the mind is not microscopic. It's not inside the head, despite all the ridiculous propaganda about thoughts and images and memories and so forth, all in occurring inside neurons and synapses. Right. One, of the, one of the biggest superstitions of modern era, unfortunately promoted by the scientific community, which should be getting rid of superstitions and not adding to them. That's right. And there's so much... Um, but, uh, nonsense, just use a nice word, nonsense, <laughs> coming out of people's materialistic beliefs that is actually not only not scientific, it's anti-scientific. Yeah. Because it obscures the actual evidence. And the evidence is that obviously mental events, dreams, consciousness are all non-physical. That should be as plain as day because none of them can be measured physically. And when, when you observe them, they don't display any physical characteristic whatsoever. Shouldn't that be QED right there and stop the conversation? Aren't yeah. we finished here? And the answer is no. Many people cling more tenaciously yeah. to their beliefs, whether they're religious beliefs or their materialistic beliefs or their political beliefs. And I'm not going to go there. Yeah. People cling to their idols, their, you know, their heroes, their beliefs. And that just throws reason and empirical evidence out the window. And that's what's happening with materialism and yeah. how it's so suffocating to the scientific study of the mind. Shamatha yeah. then is technology, and it overcomes some of the deepest qualms that were very legitimate qualms during the opening decades of the modern scientific study of the mind. This is from about 1875 to 1910, where the giants in the fields, such as Edward Titchener, William James, Wilhelm Wundt, we're all promoting a very scientific approach to the study of the mind in which they emphasize, above all, observe it for heaven's sakes. This has been the success route for all other branches of science. Whatever you, want to whatever you like to understand in the natural world, observe it with as much sophistication and rigor and replicability as you possibly can. And so that's what William James, Wilhelm von Tichner were all trying to do. Tichner was really quite outstanding. Uh, but what they didn't have and William James didn't know about. Uh, in fact, none of them did because they were very Eurocentric, living in this Victorian Victorian era by and large. Is they had they didn't have any sophisticated means for developing attention skills. In mm -hmm. fact, William James concluded, based on the evidence he had at his fingertips, that attention couldn't be trained. That it's just a fixed quality of each, each individual. Uh, well, he never went to India. Neither I don't think Tischner did or Wilhelm Bund either. 
They were very Eurocentric. They considered if the Europeans' Eurocentric civilization doesn't know something, nobody does. And so meanwhile, you know, just, you know, 8,000 miles away, India, Tibet, Southeast Asia, China, Japan, Mongolia, etc. They've been, they've been developing these incredible technologies of samadhi, of shamatha for literally millennia. But we, in our, in our Eurocentric pomposity, considered, you know, have, have assumed almost to the present day that if we haven't achieved it, nobody has. So shamatha is the technology, it's the missing link to make introspection viable as a rigorously scientific way of attending to and beginning to investigate the nature of the mind. It's the telescope without which all you have is folk astronomy, stargazing, and without shamatha, you've got folk psychology, you've got folk <laughs> meditation, you've got folk contemplative inquiry. And vipassana without shamatha is like, again, it's like being an astronomer with no telescope. Yeah. So that's shamatha. And then, so that's a contemplative technology. And then vipassana, contrary to the very valuable but very misleading watering down of vipassana where it's become equated with mindfulness which has never been true right uh and it's often equated with mindfulness and then mindfulness is equated with bare attention which has never been true and then people sitting and just practicing bare attention think that they're practicing vipassana well if, they, if well this is like a vw with a rolls royce insignia on the hood <laughs> you know and oh, look, look at my Rolls Royce, but just look, just look at the insignia. Don't look at the car. It's, right. It does say Rolls Royce or, you know, one of the $10 watches they used to sell in Hong Kong. It's a Rolex. It's exactly. a great deal. A $10 Rolex. Got to be a Rolex because it says so. And this must be Vipassana because everybody says it's Vipassana. <laughs> All righty. Well, let's deal with this. Let's get back to the real world. Uh, I've read Theravada, authoritative Theravada literature, and it's in completely in, in accordance with the classical Mahayana literature for all of Asia. And that is the Pashana differs from Shamada in that it entails an element of inquiry. That's right. If it's just being just being here now, just being barely attentive to whatever's coming up, it's not even Shamada and it's not Vipassana. And so Vipassana is contemplative science. And it can be Vipassana investigating impermanence and the nature of dukkha, the unsatisfying nature of existence when our, our Lives are permeated by attachment and craving. It is, is investigating what is really I or mine. Um, you know, in the first turning will have done in Theravada, is there anything that is really I, really mine? Uh, and so the philosophers think about these kinds of things. And philosophers were thinking about these kinds of things at the time of the Buddha and before the Buddha. There was such a pluralism of philosophical inquiry from atheism, materialism, polytheism, monotheism, personal God, impersonal God, it was, a, you know, it was far more advanced than Greece at that time in the richness of philosophical inquiry. But then, but then parallel with this, there are many schools of philosophical or spiritual worldviews at the time of the Buddha. But what was unique about India that I think you do not find at that time in China, Greece, the Mayans, or anywhere else, was by the time the Buddha came along, they already had an extremely mature discipline of samadhi. According to the Buddhist view, they'd already explored all of the, the dhyanas, within the form realm, all of the samapatis within the formless realm, and in so doing had made a tremendous number of discoveries uh, prior to the Buddha. And, and Buddhism embraced that, but again, the critical feature here that was unique, unprecedented, in the cultural, you know, the contemplative history of India, was we had philosophers on the one hand, and we had samadhi masters on the other. And what the Buddha did on the night of his enlightenment that was unprecedented, was that fusion of shamatha with, shamatha with vipassana. Exactly. Yeah. And he's using a very refined, he's got his telescope down. 
a very refined first jhana, first jhana is good enough, fourth mm-hmm. jhana, all the better, but then you don't have your intellectual faculties of vichara and vitarka, of close investigation, of course investigation. And so the first jhana was really perfect because you have that magnificent equipoise, the balance, the clarity, the sustainability of attention, which you can, you can sustain effortlessly for hours on end. But then on that basis, and this was the tremendous innovation, maybe the most important one of the historical Buddha, on that basis, now don't just start philosophizing and thinking about this and that, but you use this like Galileo looking at the little dots around Jupiter and asking a question. Are those background stars, or might they be, contrary to every belief in Europe at that time, might they be actually moons around Jupiter? He tracked them for two weeks, and he found those background stars moved along with Jupiter, which means they're not background stars. And that violated beliefs ever since Aristotle that all celestial bodies rotate around the Earth. So that is, astronomy is the vipassana of celestial phenomena. Beautiful. And vipassana is contemplative science regarding everything, elementary particles, galaxies, space, time, matter, ideas, dreams, mountains, tectonic plates, you name it, and of course, body and mind, to really try to identify phenomenologically. So it's two levels here. Phenomenologically, are these impermanent, permanent? Are they genuine sources of well-being? Are they not? Are they I or mine, or are they not? And then we go into the deeper waters that brings us to dream yoga. And then we ask, we, make, we start with the observation. And that is, as we look around us, whether in the waking state or the dream, and it certainly appears to us as if all those appearances are out there. Mm-hmm. I'm, look, I'm looking at a cabinet right in front of me, and it's brown, it's wood, it's old wood, and I can, I can almost see its firmness. It's very woody. You know, it's just wood-stained. And I'm sure if I walk over it and I put my, put my finger onto it, I know exactly what it's going to feel like because it's over there. It's over there, and I'm pointing my finger at it. It's over there, and it absolutely appears to be really existing over there independently of my looking at it or thinking about it. It's just a big, great, big, chunky wooden cabinet over there. And that's true, equally true in a dream, where only retrospectively when we wake up, we say, oh, that was misleading. There are no, there are no wooden cabinets in a dream because there's no wood because there's no molecules. And so Vipassana is really trying to understand in a kind of a scientific way nature of phenomenological reality in a, in, in a way analogous to what scientists do. They observe carefully, they ask questions, they apply analysis, they draw conclusions, they create hypotheses, test the hypotheses. In the passion at the best, that's exactly what you're doing. But science is overwhelmingly, especially since behaviorism took over the mind sciences, and then neuroscience took over, took over from behaviorism. Right. We've we we gone from dumb to dumber. <laughs> of thinking the mind is simply a behavioral disposition, which is pretty darn stupid, and then to thinking the mind is simply the brain or a function of the brain, which is dumb and which is dumber. I can't quite figure out which. I just know they're both ridiculous. <laughs> so like, I'm blunt, and that's, you know, I'm too old to care. And when you think, oh, you've been so bold, bold I, got I got nothing to lose. I'm not trying to get tenure. I, I published 40 books. I don't think I'll perish anytime soon. <laughs> Alan, you're, you're, you're cracking me up, my friend. I mean... Uh, what a feast, by the way. Uh, this is probably, and sorry about the interruption with my phone, um, this is the most articulate, elegant description of Shamatha and Vipassana, short of your books that I've come across. So thank you for being so rigorous as usual, so incredibly clear. It's really the great contribution of a lifetime of practice that, that shows the incisive clarity that you developed with your own mind. And I have to toss in just a couple of comments. Oh my gosh, sure. you, 
you hit so many incredible sweet spots here. Some of these I'm just going to pepper out because I think they, they might take us too far astray. But, you know, this whole idea of, of, of science, I have a background in physics, as you do. And um, I started barking up that tree, you know, many decades ago, um, thinking that that was, in fact, I was looking for a reality. I didn't know it. And no. I, thought, I thought that physics described reality. And, of course, they have a particular bandwidth of reality that they explore. Oh. But, but, you know, after a while, I realized I had the ladder up against the wrong wall. And, and I, I have always contended, Alan, that, that a large part of what drives the, the scientific, you get almost say imperative, is, is psychologically driven out of fear and, yeah. and a, yeah. a lack of inability to deal with foundational truths of, for instance, at the deepest levels of one inherent, uh, own inherent existence. And, I mean, in the, in the briefest possible sense, if you can somehow... Um, articulate an irreducible whatever out there by immediate implication that implies there has to be someone in here. And so um, I think there are deep psychological um, imperatives at play in the scientific agenda that professes to be objective, but goodness gracious, that is one of the most fallacious um, kind of proclamations in, in the history of the world. And it's incredibly damaging because as I said at the outset, and, and, and you, I'm pre preaching to the choir here, um, the scientists are the high priests these days. That's where we go. They're the arbiters of truth. And, and the truth that they profess, we, we forget that those are just, um, you know, like Heisenberg once said in relation to, to science, you know, uh, what we discover with science is not reality itself, but reality as it's revealed through our methods of investigation. And so, again, it's such an arbitrary adventure that because of its re uh, articulation, yeah, you know, we tend to reify, it's a near enemy of articulation is reification. And so I think, again, there's so much to say about that. We both have the same kind of passion against the hubris of the scientific community. Um, and this doesn't in any way dismiss its brilliance. I mean, I think there's tremendous contributions, obviously, that science has given to the world um, over many millennia, over or decades. Uh, the problem is, you know, putting excessive credence and credibility into that agenda. And I was also struck by your your emphasis on the Eurocentric view, which which I believe is is uh, kind of a subset of our um, monophasic approach to reality. In other words, our wake centricity. Um, we have this <laughs> right. we have this subversive wake centric agenda that is completely kind of dovetailed also with. Um, uh, photocentricity and site centricity. It's so interesting to me that, you know, a third of our brain is devoted to processing visual data. Um, and, and the visual um, sense faculty is the most superficial, the most dualistic, the most, um, I would say, accurate in terms of representing the, the, the phenomenal world altogether. And so um, that's one of the things I've discovered in my practice of the nocturnal meditations and spirituality altogether is how it reveals these blind spots. You know, as you so playfully point out um, with Mark Twain's famous, you know, effort, <laughs> it's, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't so. But what, what, I, what I want to riff on here is with your permission, and this is one of the things that you're circumambulating that I now want to unpack with a little bit more rigor. And that is that um, one of the great discoveries for me with dream yoga is that it uses the the double delusion or the example dream the nighttime dream as a way to penetrate the, you know the processes the phenomenology of the primary delusion the real dream which is so-called waking reality um, that we use the laboratory of the nighttime mind 
um, as a way to extrapolate those insights and bring them back into daytime reality in this you know, kind of bi-directional process. And so one of the things I want to really talk to you about, Alan, is that um, the, the literature is replete with proclamations that, it, that it's all just a dream. And I, I think when uh, one of the things that needs to be kind of centrifuge out here that I, I'd like to try to do with you is that it's not that terribly difficult um, for us to look at the illusory nature of reality, um, even this kind of reflexive, that run like Yeshe, you know, this ref reflexive capability um, that we can most immediately experience in the dream state. But while the dream state, at least provisionally, is not identical to the waking state, there are obviously tremendous um, overlaps and correlations. And so what I want to talk to you about is your current doctrinal and experiential doctrinal understanding and, and experiential um, realization of the differences between the nighttime dream and so-called waking reality. Because obviously, as, as Anil Seth so famously put it, you know, waking reality is just a consensual hallucination. And so we have this kind of collectivity involved in the waking state. We have the sense of stability and continuity that we don't find in the double delusion. So could you talk to us a little bit about your understanding of how we can be more accurate, um, and this is what I love to tap with your incredibly um, precise mind, how we can better articulate when we talk about reality being a dream, what does that really mean? What I love doing, and I've been doing for some years now, especially when I'm teaching or also writing, uh, is to, I call it relating the earth to the sky. And that is, I have a, a very deep respect and reverence for the teachings of the Buddha as recorded in the Pali Canon. Uh, within the Dzogchen framework, there are nine yanas. The Shravaka yana is the foundational one, basically equivalent to the Pali Canon. Uh, and then we go in the, in the Nyingma tradition through nine yanas, spiritual vehicles, culminating in Adiyoga or Dzogchen. And I, what I love to do is to hold these two simultaneously in mind. Mm -hmm. The foundation and the penthouse suite, so to speak. And so going back briefly, I'm going to circle in on your question once again. Okay. This famous dialogue between the, the Brahman Dona in the Pali Canon. And he saw the footprints of the Buddha, which, which bore the, the footprint, showed the, um, the, the Dhamma Chakra. You know, what, one of the 80, 80, what is it, 32 or 80 minor marks of the Buddha. Right. He saw these extraordinary footprints and he, and he, tr and he tracked the Buddha came upon him, evidently was quite, was filled with a sense of awe. And he asked him, are you a god? Are you a celestial being? Are, are you an earth spirit? Uh, to each of these, the Buddha said, no, no, no. And then finally he asked him, are you a man? And the Buddha's answer was no. <laughs> and now the Buddha's father was a man. His, his mother was a human being. His wife was a human being. And his son was a human being. So that pretty well brackets him is that he is a man as any human being. And he said flat out, no. And then when Donna asked him, well, then who are you? Then he said, of course, I'm sure you know. He said, sure. I am awake. And so I think this is a really good starting point because it's foundational. This means this is a story that will be relevant to every school of Buddhism. I don't know any of it, just throughout the Pali Canon. If we start there, that the Buddha was awake, this immediately implies that Donna isn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and don't abide, you know, representing the rest of us. If we're not, if you're not awake, if you're not Buddha, one who is awake, then you're, you're not unconscious, you're not dead, you're sleeping. 
and since you're we're sleeping but we're not but since we're sleeping but we are having a multitude of, of appearances arising through all of the six sense doors then we're not deep in deep dreamless sleep we are dreaming right now yeah and so in the years that i collaborated with stephen leberge with whom i made we maintain a warm friendship and great respect uh, he coming out of a really a, a modern scientific framework with an appreciation for dream yoga Tibetan buddhism and so forth but I don't, at least then when I, when I was very actively engaged with him, I'm sure he never, never would think of himself as a Tibetan Buddhist. He would think of himself as a scientist. Mm -hmm. And so in this kind of classic lucid dream context, which I heard him teach six times over when we were leading these 10 day, 10 day workshops, uh, he said the difference between waking and dreaming is waking is dreaming, but with physical constraints. That's that right. is, there are physical photons striking your eyes, sound waves striking your eardrums, there are molecules when you touch a couch, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, but the, the, the qualia, the immediate contents of what you're experiencing, the qualia, the color, sound, smell, taste, the touch, uh, and let alone your mental experiences, emotions, desires, and so forth, none of these are physical. Mm -hmm. This is why hardcore physic physicalists like Daniel Dennett, you know, who is adamant, I mean, really, like, I think he's a fundamentalist, a fundamentalist, basically. Extremist. Uh, he is extremist, but he yeah. has many, many followers. Right. He sees the incompatibility between first-person experience, which is the only kind of experience that anybody ever has. Yeah. He sees the incompatibility of experience, the contents of experience, colors, smells, smells, tastes, and so forth, with the metaphysical dogma of materialism. He sees they're incompatible, so instead of questioning his dogma, he says qualia doesn't exist. Yeah, One of the most hilarious statements I've heard in the, in the history of thought, the only, only more hilarious one is the neuroscientist Michael Graziano at Princeton, who says consciousness doesn't exist. And, right. I, and his views were published in the New York Times as well as the Atlantic Monthly. So I think this is really amazing that an editorial board will consciously read his paper and, and have him telling them consciousness doesn't exist. And they think, good idea, why don't we publish it? <laughs> So this is where we are. We've been stuck in kind of a mass psychosis of materialism, where the only thing refuting is our own consciousness and all of experience. But if yeah. you can if you can live with that, right. materialism looks pretty good. In other words, if you're a mindless robot, if you're a mindless robot, materialism is really your, should be your cup of tea. It's really but if a, you're not a mindless robot, what are you thinking? So I'm coming back now to your question. It's really, so, a, so, it's really a cult, isn't it, Alan? It I mean, is absolutely a cult. So, I mean, uh, but that, it has. Not even euphemistically. I mean, really, it's a cult. No, it literally is a cult, but with the full backing of most governments, very much including the United States government, full backing of most branches of academia, and hardly anybody in the media is questioning. Yep. So that's a lot of horsepower. That's a lot of yep. money and prestige at stake. So no wonder people have invested their whole lives uh, in a, you know, a discipline that, that's embedded in materialism don't want to question the foundation of their whole livelihood. So coming back then, sure. So this is what Stephen Bear said, and if you look at it prima facie, and you don't know anything about twentieth century physics, um, that sounds pretty good. Yep, uh, because qualia are qualia. Whether you're dreaming, you can see, smell, taste, touch, and so forth, and and the qualia you're experiencing are mental events taking place in the space of awareness. Do not exist in physical space. Dreams don't occur inside the brain. And then likewise, during the waking stage, you see all these visual appearances, sounds, and so forth. These also qualia exist in the space of awareness, not in physical space. Yep. And so in this regard, the qualia themselves, tomatoes, tomatoes, whether you're getting, you're, where you're experiencing these, these qualia during the dream state or the waking state, 
they're basically the same. That's right. But, but, the, but nobody in his right mind thinks that dreaming state and waking state are simply the same because that's, well, there's very, very strong evidence to the contrary. So this sounded, sounded good unless you've studied 20, 21st century physics. And I've been following this. I, I finished my formal studies of physics years ago. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of writing. I wrote Hidden Dimensions, the Unification of Physics and Consciousness, yeah, uh, long, long after my, uh, my studies at Amherst. And I continue to this day. And one of the most uh, remarkable statements I've seen just recently, an absolutely uh, top-notch theoretical physicist, and that's not my opinion, that is a broad consensus among theoretical physicists, is the Iranian-American theoretical physicist at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, Nima Akani Ahmed, and I listened to a, a series of lectures, very highbrow, very, very high level uh, lectures he gave on theoretical physics at a, at a, a prestigious uh, lecture series at Cornell University. And he stated, and I'll, I could quote him almost verbatim, um, for many reasons, each one of which is utterly compelling, we've come to the conclusion that space-time is doomed. It, yeah. in, in the fabric of reality, That's and right. that what we're talking about is an inherently existent external world, there is no such thing as inherently existent objective space or time or space-time. Space-time is doomed. Space-time doesn't exist. This makes a real problem for physicists because we've always been assuming that what we're studying is the physical world that is embedded in space-time. But if there's no space-time out there, then where does that leave us? And he said, this is a serious problem. Yeah. Let me interject, real, let me interject real quickly. I, I'm, I'm so excited about what you're talking about, and I can hardly contain myself. I mean, this is, this is obviously, as you know, the, the work of Anton Zeilinger and his work with the quantum entanglement, Absolutely, um, yeah. and I, which I think could very well win a Nobel Prize. This, this utter shattering conclusion that space itself is a, is, is a mere construct. Um, and it reminds me of what John Wheeler said, you know, premier student of Einstein, that fundamentally there is no out there, out there. That, and I think this is the, I have to say, coming back as much as we like to diss science, this is also the beauty of true science, the open-mindedness where we can take these paradigm-busting discoveries and in fact use them to eventually shape-shift paradigms. Um, but, but what you're articulating here is extraordinarily exciting. I think um, I did not want to interrupt, but I just had to toss that in because this is cool. Sure, sure. Well, one thing is, I would say, I don't recall ever having dissed science uh, or dismissed it, certainly never intentionally. But when I'm, I'm perfectly happy to desist, tromp on, ridicule, and throw out into the garbage is materialism. And for many years, I would refer to materialism as scientific materialism because it's so strongly affiliated with science. But I've stopped doing that because there's actually nothing scientific about the metaphysical belief that the only things that exist in the universe are physical, um, and the only things that have causal efficacy are physical. There's nothing remotely scientific about that. And it flies in the face of obvious truths, such as ideas. Ideas are in no imaginable way, are they physical? An mm -hmm. idea that a certain ethnic group is inferior, an idea that women are somehow inferior to men, an idea that European civilization is better than all of the civil ideas are not physical. Yeah. But what in the world of human civilization has more power than ideas? And therefore causal efficacy, therefore physicalism is rubbish, flying in the face of obvious truths that our emotions, what are not physical, have causal efficacy, our desires, our beliefs, and so forth and so on and so on. So I have tremendous respect for science 
and I scoff at the absurdity of materialism. Mm-hmm. And they should never be in the same. They should never be in the same phrase because it's anti-scientific. But as I love science, I studied it. I do collaborative research with scientists. So then coming back, if we start here with a statement by tremendous authority, and nobody was naysaying him, it was like three hundred physicists in the group listening to him, and nobody, you know, nobody was refuting him. Then, is, if there is no objective space-time, then to think that there are atoms out there falls apart, and and then and then the notion that there's energy out there. Well, I've often quoted Richard Feynman. That says, he says quite bluntly, nobody knows what energy is. That's right. You know, and in a and a, a, a Stephen Weinberg, a Nobel laureate in physics, mm-hmm. said atoms are no longer considered to be fundam- fundamental constituents of reality, rather principles of symmetry. So that idea that waking state is dream, but it has physical constraints, exactly what are you referring to? Mm. Because now we move beyond simple observation, that is, the, the color yellow doesn't exist independently of visual perception, visual perception doesn't exist independently of visual impressions, that's fine. But photons, nobody's ever seen a photon or an atom or electromagnetic field and so forth and so on. They do exist. And again, I'm not dissing. I love physics. I've never dismissed physics. Uh, And nobody sees them. Nobody ever thinks of seeing them. But these things exist relative to the system of measurement, relative to the conceptual framework in which you make measurements, interpret measurements, as again, you cited John Wheeler, one of my heroes. Uh, Matter and energy are not fundamental constituents of reality. It is information that is fundamental. Information is non-physical, once again, utterly non-physical, has no location in space, time, has no physical attributes whatsoever, but it's out of information that we conceive, literally in both senses of the term, we conceive the categories of matter, energy, space, time, fields, particles, and so forth, and we conceive of the categories of mind and matter. And therefore, the mind has to be utterly central uh, to any understanding of dream yoga, and this is very, very obvious, especially in Dzogchen. So coming back then, that that neat division that one is with with physical constraints and whether without, uh, on a purely nominal level, that might work. But if you're taking the physical constraints as being something out there existing in the objective universe, uh, you're not going to get any any top-notch theoretical physicist giving any support there. And so we have, let's say, just let's say an ordinary dream. There are many extraordinary dreams where people may be precognitive, they may have some clairvoyance. Sometimes people, as you know, share dreams to individuals mm-hmm. who will be dreaming simultaneously and have a shared dream. So there's a lot of anomalies, many, many kind of, how do you say, uh, not normal <laughs> or extraordinary. Extraordinary dreams, many, many kinds. Uh, but if we go back to, let's say, an ordinary dream, then we can say, where is this coming from? Where yeah. does it emerge from? And the notion that it emerges from neurons is like believing that a genie can rump, come out of a lamp if you rub it. <laughs> you know, it just makes no sense at all. And, and again, there's no branch of physics or chemistry that ever gives any allowance to the possibility of non-physical emergent properties emerging from a physical substance. All right. There isn't any branch that says that's okay. But the biologists and neuroscientists just look, throw that to the winds and say, well, it's, 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 it is because we say so. <laughs> you know, they sound like more like dogmatic theologians and scientists when they say that. So coming back then, in an ordinary dream, if we ask where it's coming from, I'll now speak from a Dzogchen perspective because it just makes the most sense to me. 
And in Dzogchen, they do use the term alai vishnana, mm -hmm. which is associated with the Chittamatra, mm -hmm. but Chittamatra mind only view. But in Dzogchen, it is, it's the inherent existence of this substrate consciousness, some people call it foundation consciousness, storehouse consciousness. The inherent existence of this is explicitly refuted, unequivocally beyond any shadow of a doubt. And Nagarjuna, in one of his treatises called Bodhicitta Vavarana, or commentary on Bodhicitta, he affirms the existence of the substrate consciousness with the immediate caveat, but it does not exist inherently. It right. doesn't exist its own defining characteristics. So if we ask, where does the dream occur from? What, where does it emerge from? Here, alaya vichnana, the Sanskrit, or kunji namshe, mm -hmm. I think it's very helpful to translate it as substrate consciousness, because the alaya, or the kunji, is actually the space, the, the space of awareness. It is the space of awareness. It's what's left when you're in deep, dreamless sleep. And imagine yep. you're lucid. Yep. So you're in deep, dreamless sleep, and you know it. What are you experiencing objectively? You're experiencing a vacuity, a space that is empty of appearances, and that is the substrate. And with what consciousness are you experiencing that substrate when you're in deep, dreamless sleep? The substrate consciousness, the consciousness of it, the substrate itself. Yep. So this is very, I think it's a very helpful, I, I, I've come up with this translation, I think it's very useful. That's all, it's not right or wrong, but I think it's accurate and it is useful, because it shows then that the dreamscape, and that includes the persona of yourself in the dream, and everything else you experience, that all the appearances are emerging from, let's say if you like Star Trek, the holodeck of the, of the substrate. This field that is empty and yet brimming over with, almost like a, quant like a quantum field, brimming over with potential energy, just ready to crystallize into forms, in, into the appearances of wooden cabinets, and so forth and so on. Um, and so it is, again, like the science fiction of a holodeck in which can manifest colors and smells and tastes and everything, and yet nothing's really there at all. They are empty appearances which are not really there. And so that's where the dream appearances emerge from and into which they dissolve when the dream comes to an end, into the substrate. And then when you're in deep dreamless sleep, here, let's take this a nice thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Let's imagine you're in deep dreamless sleep and you're lucid, you're vividly aware that yep. you are dreaming, that you're sleeping, and then there's some movement, some kind of subconscious movement, and a dream is catalyzed. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you find yourself as a, a dream persona in a dreamscape, but you're born into that dream lucidly because you weren't unconscious before. You were conscious and lucid. And then suddenly you find you have taken on this dream form of being an individual in the dream. And then the environment you're seeing. So all those appearances, again, are emerging from the substrate. And then your conscious, and then your substrate consciousness, which is all that's left when you're in deep dreamless sleep, your substrate consciousness crystallizes as a dreaming consciousness. Yes. Seeing this, hearing that, smelling this, saying this, feeling that, and so forth and so on. And then when the dreams, when the dream comes to an end, your dreaming consciousness dissolves back into the substrate consciousness. If you're going back to deep dreamless sleep, and the whole dreamscape just dissolves back into, melts back into. The substrate. So there's, I, th I think, a conceptually very compelling way of theoretical theoretically viewing and contextualizing what takes place in dreaming, what is the nature of the dreams, and why, of course, there's nothing whatsoever physical in the dream, why, as Richard Feynman found out, found out when he ran experiments, why no physical laws pertain in the dreamscape, which makes sense since there's nothing physical in the dream. And so that, that's that. And keeping it simple, 
ignoring all the anomalous dreams that, you know, and of which you, you know there are many. So there we go for the dream state. And then we come to the waking state. Yep. And so the common statement in the first turning of Wheel of Dharma, or nowadays I say Charabhata, and the second turning is not that this world is a dream, mm -hmm. but in Tibetan Milam Tabu, it's like a dream, like a dream. And in order to know how like a dream it is, the optimal strategy, if one approaches very scientifically, would, would be to become lucid, make a habit of becoming lucid, explore thoroughly the world of lucid dreaming, as Stephen LeBerge's book with that title suggests. Mm -hmm. And so you really know what a dream is like by exploring it, seeing its malleability, exercising your paranormal abilities of transformation, of, of, of emanation, and so forth, seeing what, you know, what real control you have over the dream, and then knowing experientially that there is nothing objectively real in the dream, and there's nothing subjectively real. That is, the person you think you are in the dream is not there subjectively any more than other people or other events are there objectively. So first, really fathom the nature of the dream and then wake up, come back to waking reality and recognize, okay, this is not the same. In waking reality, the phenomena, the cabinet I'm looking at, is that cabinet made out of molecules, those molecules made of atoms, those of elementary particles? Do the laws of physics hold here? Are photons being emitted from the cabinet striking my retina? Is my visual cortex needed for me to see that brown cabinet in front of me? And the answer is yes. Whereas in a dream, your, your head in a dream doesn't have a brain in it. <laughs> right, right. right? right. Um, and that's why you could cut off your head and look at it if you wanted to, you know, um, in a dream. You can, do all kind of, you can do basically anything you can imagine. So the waking state is not the same. But now to make this not a too long conversation, because I know I tend to ramble a bit. No, I love it. Let's just, so in Madhyamaka, we're going to just pause there. Madhyamaka, second turn, the will of Dharma. All of these phenomena, exactly like in a non-lucid dream, appear as if they're really out there in and of themselves inherently objectively real, inherently subjectively real, but appearances lie. Yep. They are misleading. And in Tibetan, you know, the term kunzop demba, yep. this is a completely obscuring reality. It's not to say that this phenomenal world is not real, it is as real as anything else, but it obscures a deeper reality. That's right. And Dundam. that's the actual, yeah, dundam demba. Yep. It obscures a deeper reality, and that is the, the way in which phenomena actually exist. So all phenomena are kind of lying to you. And as if all, if all you do is closely apply your mindfulness to appearances, as you do in the, in the four applications of mindfulness, you get to know those appearances very well. You will see they are, imper they are impermanent, unsatisfying, and non-self. But just by gazing at appearances and closely attending to them, you will not see that they don't exist from their own side. And by and large, metaphysical realism, the theory that phenomena do exist in and of themselves, goes by and large unquestioned in the Pali Canon and the Theravada interpretation mm -hmm. of the Pali Canon. But then we come to the Heart Sutra. It is not only the self that is empty of, empty of inherent nature, the five skandhas also, as Avalokiteshvara says to Shariputra in the, in the Heart Sutra. So you take the same analysis of seeing that I, as an individual, are not the same. I am not the same as any of my skandhas, as the body or the mind any of them individually or any of or all of them collectively, nor do I exist apart from them, you take that mode of very rigorous ontological analysis and you can apply that to anything else. A chariot, as we see in the Melinda Panya, the, the dialogue between Nagasena and the King Melinda, yep. or we find it in a little known sutta called the Vajira, Vajira Sutta. It's a nun named Vajira, and she actually, she's, it's in the Pali Canon, 
and it's easy to find. You can Google it, Vajira Sutta, mm -hmm. and she comes. She draws the same conclusion that I do, I exist only nominally, like a chariot. But if a chariot is not to be found among any of its individual components, is not equivalent to all of its component collectively, and doesn't exist independently of the components, then as goes the chariot, so Double goes high. the so goes well. Of course, I've already gone there, but <laughs> so goes all the rest of the physical world. Because you apply the same analysis to elementary particles all the way up to a universe or galactic clusters. And you find, uh, you see that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. That is, if I don't exist inherently, then nothing else does either. And so in this framework, then, the second turn, turning of will of Dharma, perfection of wisdom, then all phenomena are dream-like, but they are not dreams, but they are physical. They are made of atoms, particles, as I was told by one Majamaka master 40 years ago, when I was just starting to take an interest in quantum mechanics, he told me very forcefully, do not think that we who follow Majamaka are rejecting the existence of elementary particles, atoms, waves, fields, and so forth of physical laws. We do not reject them. We're simply questioning how they exist, but not whether they exist. And it's That's a very right. important point. He was not dissing physics. He was dis dissing the metaphysical realism that, that underlay physics until the 20th century, and frankly still underlies an awful lot of thinking in physics and all other branches of science, because it's almost as if the, the implications of quantum mechanics have been quarantined, that if people in other, other branches of science or even other branches of physics started, started taking that seriously, uh, as Werner, Werner, Werner Heisenberg said, we feel the very ground beneath us is shaking. That's right. They were That's exper right. experiencing an existential crisis, like, if it's not like we thought, then what on earth does this mean? Yeah. And as Richard Feynman and many other great physicists have said, we still don't really know. And there's a very good reason. And take a small tangent here. But what's coming up ever so prominently since the time of Heisenberg, then more so with John Wheeler, and more so with another cutting-edge theoretical physicist by the name of Christopher Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. who's come up with a formulation called cubism, that what's, what's just unavoidable is the elephant sitting in the middle of the room mm -hmm. is what's the role of the observer? That's right. Which was denied, excluded, ignored, or dis dismissed until the end of the 19th century. And now you just can't do that anymore. That's right. But then what is the nature of observer? And you cannot understand the nature of observer without understanding consciousness. And physicists have no training whatsoever in studying the mind or consciousness. And this is where... I think Buddhism especially has a tremendous amount to offer and a lot to learn. Because as Buddhists, we don't know the, the reasonings, the mathematics, the experiments done and so forth in modern experimental physics, like with Anton Seininger and the breathtaking work done by John Wheeler, Andre Linde at Stanford, uh, Thomas Hertog in Belgium, and the list goes on. These are brilliant physicists. And they're coming up again and again and again. What's the role of the observer? So, all right, dreamlike. There seems to be a real physical world out there existing not only independently of observation, but independently of conceptualization. And philosophers of the caliber of the late Hilary Putnam say, look, language is so embedded in every aspect of our experience that to try to speak of any aspect of reality independent of language is utterly untenable. Yeah. His, his internal realism, his pragmatic realism, is simply breathtaking, especially, he was a, a, a Harvard philosopher for something like 40 years, so he's absolutely mainstream and eminent, 
But the, the fact that he could have come up with this internal realism that avoids both metaphysical realism and instrumentalism, which kind of drifts off into solipsism mm-hmm. and, and to nihilism, and come up with this middle way was really quite breathtaking. But he didn't draw on Magarjuna or Shantikirti. He drew on Wittgenstein, Kant, and William James. So from this perspective, then, waking reality, dreamlike. But now I'm going to move to the third and final dimension. And that is we go to the third turning wheel of Dharma, where yep. the emphasis is on Tathagat Garva, Buddha nature, primordial consciousness. And let's just slip right on through to the practical application of these teachings that we find in Mahamudra and Chen. And so if you cut through your human mind that arises independence upon the human brain, you melt that, you, you deconfigure that and melt it back into its relative ground, the substrate consciousness. Then you've come to this primal flow of consciousness for which there's very compelling evidence that is not brain dependent. It precedes the formation of the brain and it survives the formation of the brain because the activities of the substrate consciousness are conditioned by the brain, but they do not emerge from the brain. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the most profound truths that is completely ignored and not even understood by so many of the proponents of secular Buddhism, that first, first off the bat, they want to throw out, well, let's throw out the religious parts, you know, that stuff about reincarnation and karma, and let's get real here. And they show that they have less than a high school, edu- understand, high school education in terms of physics. It is so utterly naive, and they think they're so sophisticated. I must say, I'm a little bit blown away by this, uh, you know, and they're relying on, you know, ignorance of physics rather than, that if they want to say everything is physical, which is basically what they want to do, they don't even know what they word, mean by the word. Mm-hmm. So I have to say, I don't dis science, but I, I ridicule materialism. I certainly don't dis Buddhism, but secular Buddhism is a crock. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, just, it's so silly. It's so ignorant and pompous and ethnocentric. And, and it's racist for heaven's sakes. We white people, we know more about what the Buddha actually said than the, those Asians for the first 2,500 years. Because after all, what? We're white? Yeah. Or we have high school education? So I'm finished with that. But I really find this is also worthy of ridicule and not even serious debate. And so coming back to the deep waters, now we go into Dzogchen, the great, the great perfection. So we melt the psyche into its substrate consciousness, and all you need for that is shamatha. Mm-hmm. And now you've seen the nature of consciousness. You see that it's non-physical. You see it's immaterial. And you see by direct observation, there's no conceivable way that this primal flow of consciousness could possibly emerge from molecules, atoms, chemistry, electricity. It's a ridiculous idea. Or that it occurs out of, it emerges out of nothing is even more absurd. And so then the obvious logical thing is to follow Dharmakirti. He said, wait, let's make it modern. Configurations of space, of space time emerge from space time, not from matter energy. Mm-hmm. Configurations of matter energy emerge from configurations of matter energy, not from space time, not from nothing. Configurations of consciousness emerge from configurations of consciousness, not from space-time, not from mass energy. That there are three fundamental constituents, not inherently real, but really foundational for understanding the universe at large. And to boil everything down to physical is just dogmatic stupidity. That's I'm blunt because I'm 69 and what the heck? Yeah, exactly. Like what I'm saying, I don't mind. Disagree right. with me. Knock yourself out. Uh, I don't mind at all. But I'm going to say my, my, my piece, and I can back up what I'm saying with experiment. And so let's imagine you've dissolved your mind in the subject consciousness. Now you know the nature of consciousness. It's not a mystery, knucklehead. All you had to do was look at it. Yep. Any more than, you know, the moons of Jupiter. If you never look at it, that's a, that's a mystery. Which is further away, the sun, the sun or the moon from the Earth? Well, that's a mystery if you don't have a telescope. 
But if you do look, then, oh, okay, you can figure that one out pretty soon. Mm -hmm. And so you, you go that far, but then you come to this point where you've come to the same room, so to speak, as you do when you enter into a lucid, dreamless sleep state. Because mm -hmm. your coarse mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness or in the Pali canon, no, not Pali, but in the Theravada tradition, in Pali language, they call it the Vanga, the ground of becoming. They're referring to the same, same dimension of consciousness when all the activities of the mind, the javana, of the citta, have all, how do you be, have all dissolved into the ground. The javana dissolved into bhavanga, all the activities of the mind dissolved into the substrate consciousness. But then whether you've gotten there by achieving shamatha or you've gotten there by being very expert in developing and sustaining lucid, dreamless sleep, mm -hmm. then you're very, very close to cutting through yep. this conditioned flow of consciousness that is conditioned, it's not a person, it's impermanent, and so forth. It arises independent upon causing additions. It's, it's individuated, it's my substrate consciousness versus yours. But you're very close, if you apply vipassana to that which is aware, when you're resting in the substrate consciousness, and you can do this in a, in a lucid dreamless sleep state, you can do this once you've achieved shamatha. You probe inwards in an ontological probe into the nature of that which is aware, when you're resting in that state, and you can do so by asking, where, whence does it arise? Where is it located? Where does it go? This is classic Mahamudra Devashana. And you cut through. You cut through that sense that there is a real subject in here. You shatter that. You cut through that. And that's the meaning of the word texture. Yep. You, you may cut through them to what is variously called indwelling mind of clear light, to mm -hmm. Tathagigarbha, yep. Buddha nature, primordial consciousness, pristine awareness, and it goes by a number of other names as well, you've now cut through to the ultimate ground awareness, the, the ground pristine awareness, this ground path and fruition pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, it is none other than Dharmakaya, Buddha mind. And so if you're really an authentic Dzogchen practitioner and you're practicing in a way such that your insights will be sustainable and radically and irreversibly transformative, you have to achieve shamatha. You can't skip it. That's right. you, you have to practice and gain realization of emptiness by way of vipassana. You have to cut through the conditioned mind that realizes emptiness to see that the mind itself is unborn, cut through to that unborn, unborn dimension of consciousness, which is pristine awareness, unborn, unceasing, beyond the parameters of existence, non-existence, arising and passing, coming and going, one or more than one, all the eight conceptual categories, the eight conceptual extremes, so to speak. Okay. You cut through that, and then now you're ready for the first time to actually rest in open presence. This word also has been dumbed down abysmally to just being here now. You right. know, oh, what are you doing? I'm practicing Dzogchen. I'm just sitting here being present. That's very nice. You're just sitting in the little jacuzzi of your mental consciousness of a human being. And to conflate that with Ripa is utterly absurd, but it's very common, and it sells well. You want to get a lot of people coming to your Dzogchen retreats. But if you want to have sustainable insight into emptiness and then into Rikpa itself, Shamatha is your bedrock. On that basis, you, you develop insight by way of Vipassana. You cut through to Rikpa, and then you're, you're ready for non-meditation, which is simply resting in Rikpa, viewing reality, viewing the great perfection of reality from the perspective of pristine awareness, which is in the fourth time, which, which transcends past, present, and future, yep. subsumes them, 
pervades them, but transcends them, yep. you're viewing reality from this perspective. And from this perspective and this perspective only, now you can say and you will see that not, are, not only are all phenomena looking out over the Pacific Ocean here from my home in Santa Barbara and the hills and so forth, not only is this phenomenal world that I experience in the waking state, not only is this dream-like, as is known by the masters of Madhyamaka, it is a dream. That's right. From the perspective of pristine awareness. That's right. This is a dream, That's and right. I am awake. I'm speaking as, as if I were an accomplished Sotya master. I, I make no claims. But if you're resting there, you are like the Buddha. You are awake. And if you would be resting in pristine awareness, and somebody asked you, addressing your pristine awareness, are you human? The only accurate answer would be, no, I'm awake. Yeah. You think you're human, yeah. but human beings are, each human being is a Buddha dreaming that he or she is, is, is a human being. Yeah, yeah, a form, of, a form of pinched awareness or contracted awareness. Ellen, exactly. I, I got to circle back on a couple of things. Oh my gosh, what, what an incredible feast. A number of things came to mind. The one I think that I want to stress at the outset, and then I want to return to a couple others with your permission, because, oh my gosh, you're hitting on so many gems here. But one thing that strikes me, it, it, the, the path that you're pointing out um, is incredibly elegant, and I could not agree more with you. But one thing I want to um, not so much challenge you with, but unpack the uh, second approach to this, perhaps, is that when a listener or a, a new practitioner hears about this <coughs> incredibly elegant, historically um, kind of substantiated, and you could say time-tested approach of shamatha, vipassana, you know, uh, bodhicitta inserted in there, of course, if using it all. Yeah, then absolutely. It seems like, oh my gosh, it's going to take me 15 lifetimes. And so, <laughs> Only? Exactly. exactly. You're, you're quite an optimistic chap, aren't you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But what I want to talk to you a little bit about is the, in addition to what you're saying, and I, I completely concur with you, it, it's been my experience in 40 years stumbling on my, on my path, my experience in extended retreat. But I also want to, to inspire our listeners and talk to you a little bit about the utter immediacy of it all. That on one level, you know, Shumpa Mishay talked, as you know, about flashing ordinary mind, flashing Tamagi Shepa. And basically, sure. the, the utter immediacy of opening to these primordial states, the, the um, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, clear light mind, you know, we have a thousand names for that, which cannot be named. So I, I want to give people a little bit of encouragement and have you talk about, yes, we have this long path that brings about the stability that's necessary for 10th Bumi realization, but we also have moment to moment um, immediate access to the state because fundamentally there's nothing other than this state. And so fundamentally, the only thing that's really necessary is recognition that we have to open the aperture of our awareness. And I have to say, Ellen, this is one reason I so enjoy the nocturnal practices is because that's, that's largely what they do for me is they, they allow me to replace this linear, you know, light switch model of the mind with the dimmer and, and basically increase, open, dilate my consciousness, um, mm -hmm. increase the aperture of awareness so that I realize that right here, right now, always already, never not available is in fact this thing that can sometimes seem so distant, so removed and, and even almost intimidating. So can you talk to us a little bit about juxtaposing the rigor, the elegance of a lifetime path, obviously that brings about stability, 
with the immediacy, you know, what they say, as you know it in the Dzogchen teachings, um, short sessions repeated frequently, you know, just opening the mind, accessing sure. that, the immediacy of that. Yeah. So let's balance what you said with, with a little bit of that kind of sudden realization approach. Sure, happy to do so. And I, frankly, I often teach this when I'm leading retreats all over the world, including eight-week retreats every spring in Tuscany. I just finished leading a, a week-long retreat in at the Shambhala Mountain Center, I think, as you know. Yeah. And, uh, so that was all recorded. And just by the way, for anybody listening, in about a month or so, all of the guided meditations, the lectures on the four yogas of Mahamudra, uh, and, and then discussions, all of this was audio recorded, and all of this will be made uh, available for free as podcasts on the Santa Barbara Institute website. Oh, beautiful. I'm very, very happy when things can be offered free, and we have done this with the permission of Shambhala Mountain Center, so I'm very glad for their graciousness and their generosity. So, But what I did emphasize just to in this last retreat was looking at the four yogas, and they're utterly awesome, they're mm -hmm. majestic. And when you come to the, the great stage of the fourth yoga, the yoga of non-meditation, you're yep. a Buddha. Yep. And, and moreover, the four yogas, according to the, the great yogi Garchinamuche, and according to other great authorities as well, those four yogas are sufficient for achieving perfect enlightenment without stage regeneration, completion, and so forth. As is said also in some of the Dzogchen literatures that I've translated, that the, the, the sequence of Shamadeva Vipassana texture, and then quite possibly add Turtgel, the bread crossing over, yep, this is sufficient for achieving enlightenment without necessarily going into all of the, the elaborateness of stage regeneration and completion practices. So having said that, what we're looking at is something fundamentally not complicated, not complicated. Four yogas, here they are, and I gave a very elaborate ex explanation of them, and always integrating these with, with practices. We probably did, what, six, probably 24, 24 different meditations in six days, because I would teach a variation on the method each, each section. And so on the, on the one hand, I think if we are to have an authentic understanding of these traditions, such, such as Mahamudra Dzogchen, it's important not to dumb them down, to yep. water them down. Yep. And give people the impression, you know, practice for a while. You know, after a weekend, you should be able to rest in Rikpa. You know, and if you do, if you do a, a datu in one month, that should be enough for shamatha. Right. And vipassana, well, you you kind of get it, don't you? Everything's dreamlike. Okay, you got vipassana. You know, there's just so much of this watering down and yeah. marketing and commodification. Yeah. But I feel I have to come up kind of hard on the other side. Yeah. And you know, and, and that is when you know, some of the masters that I've, that I've studied under have achieved shamatha have displayed extraordinary cities, have clairvoyance, have past life recall. And so to see the enormity of it on the one hand, say, okay, this is a big picture. And if you're thinking it might take you 15 lives, well, consider how many lifetimes you've been around thus far. 15 is a pretty good deal. Right. But of course, the idea here, ideally, is that we so, we so focus our energies, our aspirations, our, our passions onto the path that we formally actually reach the path in this lifetime and then proceed along it, hopefully and ideally, to its culmination. And to reach the path, you must have the shamatha, you must achieve shamatha, achieve vipassana, to reach the path of Mahamudra Dzogchen. In addition to shamatha and vipassana, you must identify, as you said, recognize pristine awareness or rikpa. Having said all of that, though, then what I always try to do every single day and pretty much every session, Okay, this is a very, this is like looking at Mount Everest. That's going to be a long climb. But now let's relate this back to our daily lives here and now. And are any of these practices, the Vipassana, the Shamatha, or, or even 
open presence or, or non-meditation, resting in rikpa, are these practices beyond our scope, beyond our reach? Are they only something to think about? Or can we actually practically apply these in daily life right now and see here in this day, in this year, in this lifetime, can we see very, very practical, meaningful, transformative benefits? And you know the answer, the way I phrase the question. And so on the one hand, this is an enormous project, and it's worth, if you, if you really get the significance of it, the meaning of it, the profundity of it, uh, then you'll see this is worth any amount of time. Yeah. What else is worth doing compared to studying, stepping onto the path of awakening and coming to its conclusion? Is there something else you think is more important? That's you right. better go do that then and get back to me when you're finished. <laughs> but Because this, when all is said and done, is the only thing to be done, and everything should be leading to this. And so when it comes to shamatha, well, to actually achieve shamatha is probably going to take months of absolutely focused, full-time, contemplative practice. And that needs a really nurturing, supportive environment, optimally having very good dharma companions, fellow travelers, optimally having an experienced teacher right there, available to consult with on a regular basis, to get really hands-on guidance. And, and those type of, that kind of a situation, a very conducive environment, food no problem, Visa, no problem. Good companions, solid with ethics, motivation, discipline, experienced teacher or teachers. They're about as rare as hen's teeth. And this is why I've been striving over 13 years uh, to create, and now we are creating, exactly such a center in Tuscany, right. where we've already purchased the property, we purchased a house for administrative headquarters, and we're now right in the process of raising funds to build 18 cabins where people with no visa problems, we've, we've gotten that covered. And with no financial problems, we've got that covered, and there will be good companions, and we'll always have an, one or more experienced teachers there, Asian and Western, to try to create the optimal circumstances so people can prepare, prepare, prepare in a regular meditative practice in the daily life, trying to transform their whole lives into dharma, not meditating for 16 hours a day on a cushion, mm -hmm. but through practices such as lojong, the mind transformation, practices of bodhicitta, the six perfections, the four thoughts that turn the mind, and so forth, really transform your whole life into dharma. And then when the outer mandala, the inner mandala, the outer circumstances, and where you are mentally and in your own personal life, when everything is set, then to be able to take a finite period of time off, to go off into your the closest to the ideal circumstance you can find, to practice and achieve shamatha, practice and achieve vipassana, identify rippa, step onto the path. But frankly, once you've achieved shamatha, you can go wherever you like because yeah. you're bringing your retreat center with you That's right. because of the profound stability, clarity, and resounding sanity of your awareness. So shamatha alone is worth any amount of effort one might put into it. Billionaires can't buy it. Movie stars can't buy it or celebrities of any court can't buy it. But it's more precious than anything that can be bought. So to relate this to daily life, Shamatha on a regular basis, whether it's mindfulness of breathing, observing the mind, whatever it may be, is an absolutely indispensable element of one's date, daily, daily diet, I would say, or your nutrition, your spiritual nutrition. It's a crucial element, and you'll see here and now the benefits of it. It's not just future lives or something like that. It's not faith-based. And Vipassana, both the kind of the foundational uh, Vipassana of the four applications of mindfulness, it's stunningly, dazzlingly brilliant. It is the, the greatest mind science that, it, that occurred, you know, from the time of the Buddha. And it's practical. It's transformative. And we have, we have marvelous teachers like Analyo Bhikkhu and others 
that knows this inside and out. They're master teachers of this. And then on that basis, then the, the more ontological type of Vipassana asking the very nature of how things exist. Again, this has practical applications of daily life. And now on that basis, even in one session, and I often teach 20, I generally teach 24 minute sessions mm-hmm. called one shutta in Tibetan, one gatika. Gatika, yep. Gatika, yeah. One sixtieth of a 24 hour period. Yep. I think it was Kamalashila Kamala that cited that. It's a good place to start. So when I'm leading general retreats for a week or so, and just leading 24 minute sessions one after another. Uh, so it's not too long, not too short. But even in a 24 minute session, you could, for example, spend more or less the first, first eight minutes. Eight minutes, mindfulness of breathing, observing mind, calming the mind, relaxation, stability, vividness. When the mind has some degree of equipoise, of balance, then go into some very fundamental core approach to Vipassana, into the nature of one's own personal identity or the nature of the mind that is observing. Do that for eight minutes. And when there's some sense of kind of a melting or a, a melting away of kind of concrete reality of subject, of object, seeing these as appearances that are not really there, then you may rest. You may do your best to cut through to a simple awareness that is unborn, unceasing, not entangled in dualistic thinking or grasping, and rest there. And so this is something one could start tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, shamadivapashan and texture. So on the one hand, these are sequential. The classic way is achieve, practice shamatha, achieve it. Practice vipassana, achieve it. Now, go for cutting through, identify rikpa, rest in rikpa, go for it. You're, you're going to become a Buddha soon. And so the gradual path is what is true for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. And having said that, there, are, there have been prodigies forever. The sudden realizers. Yeah. These sudden realizers. And it's not because God made them better or they're just better people. The only really reasonable explanation for that is they're coming into this lifetime with a tremendous amount of momentum. Yeah. Just like, like Mozart and other savants in mathematics, in science, in, in music, art, and so forth. And so there are, I always leave that door open. There are individuals who can simply skip shamatha, um, like Bahia, Bahia in the Pali Canon. Mm-hmm. He, received, he sought out Buddha, he went to great lengths to seek, seek out the Buddha. He three times asked him to give teachings. The Buddha finally gave him teaching about one paragraph. And by the time the paragraph was over, Bahia, the fastest achievers, was an arhat. Well, this means he was one of those extremely ripe persons where he just heard, the, heard teachings, he took them right in, and bing, 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 he achieved, he achieved shamatha, he achieved stream entry, once returned and non-return arhat, and he was finished, which is a very good thing, because one week later he died because a cow gored him. <laughs> you know? And so there are exceptional individuals. I always leave that open. I know I'm not one of them. I'm one of the plotters. <laughs> but uh, you know, if you enjoy the path, then you know, enjoy the path. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, I, I, really, really, really elegant. And you know, I'm a student these days. Um, last couple of years, I've been quite fascinated with Shaiva Tantra, um, Kashmir Shaivism, uh, Abhinava Gupta, Chambaraja, and the like. And, and I find a great deal of resonance between these traditions. And obviously, appreciating their differences. And, and the reason I tossed the, the last interjection in Alan is that one of the central teachings of Tamaraja is that, um, you know, reality is simple, is delusion that's complicated. And, and, I, yeah, toss sure. that, and I toss that in because, again, I, I don't want to intimidate, and I'm sure you don't. That's right. But, it, but, the same, but at the same time, there has to be, and, and again, this is your great gift, is to, is to stress the reality and to challenge the modern 
kind of infatuation with instant result and media gratification and instant awakening, and and and, and thereby not you know acknowledging the the laws of habituation, karma, and the like. And so I'm tremendously appreciative of your emphasis on on shamatha and stability because people. Oh my gosh, you know, we both know I've, I've been teaching for decades. I, I see it in my own experience that, that people struggle um, to assess levels of progress. And in a large sense, they, they just hopscotch over these fundamentals, forgetting that in many ways, as they say in the Mahamudra teachings, you know, the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly and if, right. And if, and if we tend to raise to graduate school without, you know, going through kindergarten and, and under, undergrad, none of it's going to stick. It's going to land on concrete instead of a fertile field. But I want to swing back in, Alan, and talk to you. I mean, again, you've talked about so many incredibly rich things here. I want to return and, and further unpack for our listeners this notion of after we leave the second turning and everything is, um, you know, clear cut, ground zero, you know, what it is that we're left with. Because on one level, what I'm hearing you saying, and I want to make sure I'm understanding it, on one level, I suppose we could say there is no ontology. There's only epistemology. There's only qualia. There's only information. And then if we take all that down in a type of quote unquote spiritual reductionism, we fundamentally are left with nothing but um, awareness. And so can you talk a little bit more about um, what it is that we uh, that one is left with when they cut through all the adventitious defilements that obscure this foundational um, state and space. We can come back to this very provocative and very short sutta of the, the nun Bhikkhuni Vajira. Uh, when Mara came and tried to derail her, tried to completely demolish her, uh, undermine any sense of self-confidence and so forth, and she basically throttled him. Uh, by number one saying, you know, I am simply, I have only a nominal status. I, this nun, a nominal, a nominal status very much like a chariot. A chariot exists only because there's a name imputed as chariot. And so, but then what was so interesting? While she basically deconstructed herself to a merely nominal status, she deconstructed a chariot and therefore all, the, all of the physical phenomena out there to a merely nominal status, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very reminiscent of what Nagarjuna is going to systematize not long after that. Uh, but then she said, what is real? What is real is suffering and the causes of suffering. Mm -hmm. And so what, now this, and very few people even know this sutta, but it's really quite brilliant. And you can find the corresponding dialogue in the Milindapanya mm -hmm. between Nagasena and the king. Because yep. he, he goes for the same analogy, the analogy of the chariot. Yep. And it comes, comes, comes to the same conclusion. There's no chariot out there. It's only a name imputed upon parts that are not a chariot, individually or collectively. But having said that, it seems to me if I should interpret the nun, the Bhikkhuni Vajira's perspective then, is she sees that the physical world is not really out there. It has only a nominal status. But when she comes to suffering and the causes of suffering, comes to the second skanda and the third skanda and the fourth skanda and the fifth skanda, these, my cracky, these are real. And if one looks at it again, just looks at it briefly, make sure when you're in agony, are you really conceptually imputing your agony? If you're ferociously angry, is that merely a conceptual designation? Or isn't that about as real as it gets? So space, time, particles, and waves and fields may be nominal, but by gum, when you're in anguish or when you're in intense physical pain, it seems like if there's anything that's physically real, it's that. 
that's pain, the suffering itself, the dukkha, and we go to kleshas and lust and craving and greed and malevolence and so forth, these seem to be really pretty hoary, you know, pretty gnarly. And so it looks like to me like she kind of stopped at Chittamatra. Yeah. And so then the real question comes, is awareness itself? We're going to now, as, as the Majamikas do, as the Dzogchenbas do, and this is really classic in the Dzogchen, Dzogchen writings that I've translated, the, the question is raised, what is primary? Body, speech, or mind? Mm -hmm. and, you say, and you see that everything we know about the body or any physical phenomenon is only by way of mind. Mm -hmm. Speech doesn't exist independently of mind. Mind, therefore, is primary, and mind, therefore, is said to be Kunja Gyalpo, the all-creating sovereign of samsara and nirvana. So if you stop right, right there and dig in, then you could be a Chittamatran. Mind alone is inherently real. Mind and the appearances to the mind are real, and nothing else exists at all. Therefore, there is no physical universe out there, not even nominally, because mm -hmm. there's nothing really physical. It's all mental. Mm -hmm. It's all appearances which are mental and awareness of appearances that are mental. Um, but where, and then, of course, they're of the same nature, so there's no radical duality. Um, but then this is where Madhyama comes in, and the Dzogchen literature that I've translated is clearly in full alignment with Prasangaka Madhyamaka. Yeah. And that is when you come to this conclusion, okay, um, all appearances are merely appearing, but they're not really there. Nayang Madhupa, they say in Tibetan, but my awareness of those appearances. This must be real. If this isn't real, then nothing's real, which means I just slip into nihilism and we just got nothing at all. And this is where there's a very delicate surgery that takes place in the really brilliant Vipassana you find in Mahamudra and Dzogchen. They're essentially the same. And that is you probe in upon the nature of that which is aware. If you practice the shamatha method of shamatha without a sign or simply resting in the flow of awareness of being aware, then you see phenomenologically that awareness has two defining characteristics. Selshing Rikpa in Tibetan, mm -hmm. luminous, that is, it's luminous in the sense of making manifest all kinds of appearances, not that it's white or something, and it's cognizant, Selshing Rikpa, it's cognizant. So awareness is aware of and illuminates appearances. Awareness knows this from that, and those are the defining characteristics of consciousness, awareness. So that's, we've got that. That's phenomenologically, that's sound, that's accurate, entirely empirical. No, no dogmatism here at all, no belief system. That's what you see. But then if you probe more deeply, and this is exactly what's done, especially in the Mahamudra Dzogchen approaches to Vipassana, you, you direct your awareness in upon that which is aware. Don't you have a sense of being a subject in here that is conscious, that is experiencing consciousness, observing consciousness? Don't you have a sense of that? And so then you, you do this deep ontological probe. I call it a cognoscopy. <laughs> Like a colonoscopy, you really get in there and look inside. That's you awesome. This, you look right into the very nature of that which is cognizing. And then you start posing these stiletto kind of modes of inquiry. It's like a very sharp knife by, in, in the hands of a professional assassin. assassin. Shoop, shoop, and you're dead. You know, but very carefully placed. And you probe in upon that which is aware. And you ask... If that which is aware, you can call it mind or that which I designated on the basis of mind, namely me, but let's just stick with the mind. Why don't we stick with the basis of designation? If I probe into the nature of the mind that is aware, that thinks, that feels, that experiences, that decides, if I probe in upon that agent, if it exists, it must have characteristics by which it can be known. 
if you say it has no, no characteristics, then it's meaningless to say it exists. If you say its characteristics are invisible, then that's meaningless. So if the observing mind, the, the mind that is agent, if it does exist, it must have identifiable characteristics. Otherwise, the word exist doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So what are they? We can give the characteristics of consciousness, but that's not the question. We can give the characteristics of the 51 mental factors. That's not the question. The question is that which is observing, that which is meditating. Look inwardly. This is not a philosophical exercise. This is a radically empirical exercise, a la William James. Yeah. When you observe inwardly, what comes to mind when you seek to observe that which is observing, that which is meditating? And you may find that you not only don't find any, but you right. may see that they are, there are no characteristics to be found. If you then draw the conclusion, it doesn't exist because there are no identifiable characteristics. If that's your conclusion, then the next question is, what just drew that conclusion? Yeah. Something that doesn't exist doesn't draw any conclusions. Something that doesn't exist doesn't get angry, doesn't meditate, doesn't see, doesn't experience, doesn't feel. And then it's kind of like bang your head against two walls until either your head crumbles or the two walls crumble. <laughs> your head crumbles when you say, I give up, I'm frustrated, I can't do this anymore. But the other possibility, if you're really tenacious and you're very hard-headed, you bang your, wall, bang your head against the wall of it exists, therefore it must have identifiable characteristics, and then you see you can't find them. And then you bang your head again, but if it doesn't exist, then how can I draw that conclusion? And you bang your head against the wall there until if you're really hard-headed and very persevering and you're empowered with shamatha, which gives you the staying power, then you crumble those two walls of existence and non-existence and you cut through the conditioned mind to unborn awareness, which is beyond the categories of existence and non-existence. Right. And this is really, I think it is unique to the Mahamudra Dzogchen Mojavipassana because other modes like the brilliant Tsongkhapa, breathtakingly brilliant Tsongkhapa, he will say, identify that which is to be refuted, an inherently existent mind, an inherently existent self, and then ask, is it the same or different than its parts? Many, many reasonings following Nagarjuna. And then you come to the conclusion that inherently existent self or mind does not exist at all. It's a sheer negation of that. And then with your conventional mind, your conventional awareness, you sustain that realization and you realize emptiness. And the mind that realizes emptiness is a conditioned mind and if it's fused with shamatha, it is that subtle continuum of mental consciousness wherein lies the union of shamatha vipassana. But the mind that's realizing emptiness is still a conditioned mind. Whereas this approach to vipassana on the nature of mind in Mahamudra Dzogchen is not trying to identify what is the object of negation. It's simply saying flat out, does a mind observer exist or not? And you see that neither one, it exists, then good, show me the characteristic. It doesn't, then how can it draw that conclusion? And you just keep on banging against those two extremes of conceptual elaboration, in Tibetan, until the wall, until you either give up out of frustration or exhaustion, or you shatter those walls, and then you cut through to unborn awareness, which is pristine awareness. And that's Buddha mind. So it's a very, very straight, sleek, unelaborate, unelaborated approach. And once you have that shamatha vipassana identified pristine awareness, then that's your path along the path of, of, of accumulation, path of joining, path of seeing, path of meditation, and onto the path of no more training. It's just that. Yeah.
Those four yogas are sufficient. Even without chutkyao, they can be sufficient. So it's very sleek, very unelaborate. And to my mind, at this point, what I've just been describing, this is the ultimate science of mind and Mm -hmm. ultimate science of awareness. Mm -hmm. It's utterly scientific. There's no leap of faith. There's no adherence to dogma or belief. It's radically empirical, like Galilei looking at the moons of Jupiter, like like Darwin examining the mutations that he saw in the Galapagos and so forth. This is purely scientific, but it's also the deepest spiritual mode of inquiry or contemplative mode of inquiry I think ever conceived. So then the the division between, let's say, religion and science or spirituality and science melts away completely. This is the deepest spirituality cutting right through the very ground of being, the ultimate dimension of transcendent awareness, and it's completely scientific. And don't you find, Alan, this is so rich, I cannot tell you. And so don't you find, Alan, from this point of view... um, and this is my terminology, but I, I think you'll, you'll get what I'm talking about. It, it, <coughs> this dovetails back into um, the different types of worldviews that, that people can have based on their um, developmental structures. And what I'm getting at here is that from this, from this point of view, the realization born from this is a type of um, ontic plasticity. And, and by that, what I mean is that on one level, reality is, I see it as being extraordinarily polite reality will configure itself in the ways that you were alluding to earlier. Reality will configure itself based on the developmental apparatus of the observer. And so I think I want to bring this forth, Alan, because this is incredibly important um, to understand in terms of diffusing things like culture wars, diffusing things like war altogether, that if, if we understand the the plastic nature of reality using that very popular term these days from neuroplasticity. It's not just, it's not just neuroplasticity or naughty plasticity. It's like reality altogether is plastic, i.e. dreamlike. And so to me, isn't it fair to say that from that stance, we can then see kind of like a King Midas approach to so-called ontology is that whatever an individual, a particular developmental um, st- uh, level of development structure, whatever they touch with their cognitive perceptual apparatus turns into their version of gold, which of course is what they fight and kill for because they they sure. uh, imbue that to be their reality. When of course, again, like you said earlier, we're fundamentally not <clears throat> dismissing that reality because provisionally on the level of Kunze, it is their relative truth, and and Upai is connecting to people at that level but we want to challenge the status of that reality. Exactly and, right. and so with that in mind, isn't that a fair way to look at reality as, as this kind of plastic, dreamlike, uh, malleable, um, quote unquote, what thing, uh, luminosity and emptiness, whatever you want to pen to it, that thereby with this level of recognition, it helps us develop a sense of humility, a sense of respect and honoring of other people's places and stations in life. I mean, this is what I derive from this mm-hmm. um, foundational discussion or one of the things that drive I'd, I'd, I'd want to draw a sharp distinction between people and people's views people okay. and people's behavior people and people's way of life uh, because people are sentient beings sentient beings are each one equally endowed with Buddha nature so whether it's Mr. Trump or whether it's Mother Teresa or Dalai Lama or anybody else each one is you know imbued with Buddha nature so in this regard Buddha nature is worthy of the utmost respect, the reverence, uh, and for sentient beings imbued with Buddha nature, each one equally worthy of compassion and loving kindness. 
and where they err when people engage in terribly harmful behavior of speech, of body, and so forth. They're worthy of compassion only. And if we can possibly help them come out of the delusion, uh, correct their harmful behavior, that is our responsibility, our privilege, on the one hand. On the other hand, are there views that are absolutely toxic, mm -hmm. delusional, false, and destructive? Mm -hmm. and so let's take an easy one, racism. Yep. Do, I, do I respect racism? Not for an instant. Do I respect racists? Well, not for their racism. But a racist is a human being, so, and they probably have many other qualities. Nazis, the individual Nazis had many good qualities, I'm sure. But I don't respect anything about Nazism. I don't respect anything about racism. I don't respect anything about materialism at all. There's nothing there that I see worthy of respect. Mm -hmm. It seems to be false and absolutely catastrophic, especially when it gets wheels. And that it, when it goes into the triad of materialism, hedonism, consumerism, this has been really, ever since Thomas Huxley in the mid-1860s, this has been conflated with science, and since and so this is 150 years of the rise of materialism, and I don't think it's a coincidence, and I'm not speaking of a simple causality, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's a simple coincidence that the rise of, of so-called scientific materialism and the destruction of the ecosphere yeah. began around the same time, and they're destroying the world right now. We've wiped out 60% of not only large wildlife, but even insects. 60% have disappeared in the last 50 years. Humanity's never been that destructive, not the most awful religious fundamentalist or tyrants or dictators. Materialism, when it has the wheels of hedonism and consumerism, is literally chewing up this planet, destroying the ecosphere. And within 50 years, we may very well find that human civilization has been profoundly, radically undermined. This is not because of just machines or coal or gas. It's because of worldview. Yeah. And hedonism is a value system and consumerism is a way of life. So I think here when it comes to materialism, there is nothing I respect. When it comes to public policy and politicians that deny global climate change, who practice racism and so forth and so on, there's nothing that I respect. It is contemptible behavior, contemptible views, and I absolutely stand by that. But I do my very best, at least I certainly try, not to hold in contempt those who hold such views, any more than if I went to a psychiatric ward and I saw people with preferred psychoses, that I'd hold them in contempt. That would be terrible. Mm. But that doesn't mean I respect schizophrenia or paranoia or any other type of my psychosis. And so I think there's a sharp edge there. Yeah. Now, with, having said that, there's a, there's a conclusion that I've been uh, just in, inevitably drawn to. It. There's another word I'm, I'm looking for, but I can't avoid the conclusion coming from Dzogchen, that there's one universe for every sentient being, flat out. And this is really explained in quite some elegant detail in cosmogony and Dzogchen and so forth. So I won't elaborate. I, I should really get back to my meditation quite soon. Sure, now. sure. It's gone a wee bit, after, a wee bit longer than, than an hour. Oh, you're right. Like 45 minutes longer. I'm lost. Uh, yep. So, But this is a very important point, that there are views that are flat out wrong, and among the flat out wrong ones, there are some that are absolutely destructive. Uh, the view that held by 40% of Americans that the earth was created less than 10,000 years ago is wrong. I don't see it as being catastrophic. Mm -hmm. I don't see how that really harms people. 18% of Americans believe that the sun goes around the earth. 18%, one out of five. Um, well, that's wrong, but is that really harming anybody? Was anybody harmed before Galileo in believing that all the, the sun, stars, planets, and all, everything went around the earth? I'm not sure that anybody was harmed. They were wrong. 
but was it really harmful? Whereas materialism is wrong and it's catastrophically wrong. Yeah. And it's dehumanizing, demoralizing, and disempowering to the individual because it tells you you're just a brain and a brain operates according to the mindless laws of physics and which are amoral. And so not all views are created equal, as you very well know, among the 10 non-virtues, the most pernicious of the 10 is holding views that are out of accordance with reality. Mm -hmm. And so in this regard, there's a tremendous variety. There are wrong views that are harmless, that are wrong views that are somewhat problematic, there are wrong views that can destroy a planet. Uh, and there's behavior also that is despicable, contemptible, and so forth. But now within the realm of not wrong, is there only one truth? And that, of course, is the belief of metaphysical realists. It's out there waiting to be discovered. And I don't believe that for a microsecond. Yeah. And so in this regard, we have not only Dzogchen and Madhyamaka, as it says in the Kala Chakra Tantra, for example, there is no correct objective, uh, ob objective correct description of the universe out there. The, the right one. In other words, there is no grand unified theory of the way things really are. And, and we're all looking at just di different parts of that one total objective reality. Mm -hmm. So that's out the door. And that's really out the door from string theory, M theory, quantum cosmology, cubism, and so forth. That's history. And so then what are we left with? And we find this coming out of the, for, for in the words of people like Thomas Hertog, an outstanding theoretical physicist, Christopher Fuchs, and even Stephen Hawking, you know, pointed out that there is no, there is no objectively real past. You know, the 13.8 billion years, that's not an objectively existent reality. It is a story that is true relative to the system of measurement, the conceptual framework, the questions that were posed. But there are multiple pasts, multiple realities, none of which are objectively real, all of them arising relative to the mode of observation, the questions being asked, the measurement system, and so forth. So in this regard, while being very firm, I'm going to be absolutely titanium here, there are views that are just flat out wrong because there is no perspective from which they are right. Mm -hmm. But then we come to light, well, what is light really? Is it a wave or a particle? Except for one perspective, it's this, one perspective, that, but there's no one thing that is a particle and a wave. You can't, there's no such thing as a wavicle. It's cute to say, but it doesn't <laughs> exist. And so that's true for many, many other things that different perspectives, different systems of measurement, different kind of questions can give rise to a true relative reality that is true relative to that perspective, what I call cognitive, uh, uh, what, is, what I call it, ontological, uh, ontological relativism. Mm -hmm. Ontolo and that is things are real relative to mm -hmm. the cognitive frame of reference. Yep. And I'm drawing inspiration here from relativity theory. What is the speed, the mass, the velocity, and so forth of a, of a given entity? Well, it's relative to an inertial frame of reference, yeah. but it doesn't have an inherent existence, a degree of matter, energy, uh, volume, or speed. It doesn't have an absolute one. Only, only the speed of time, so the, the speed of light is invariant. So within the realm of, they say, all possible worlds, all possible appearing worlds is a phrase that comes up a lot mm -hmm. in Buddhist literature, that there are many, many worlds. There's one world for every sentient being. And multiple diverse sentient beings can have multiple diverse realities that are incompatible with each other, but nevertheless as true as anything else, because they're true relative to that perspective. Whereas for a racist, you may think that certain ethnic group is by nature inferior, and you're wrong. There is no perspective from which you're right. You're flat out wrong. Mm -hmm. And that happens to be also terribly destructive. 
So there's that, that there's no perspective from which this is true. And so therefore you're flat out wrong and that should be refuted rather vehemently, especially if it has catastrophic results like racism does. But then if you're, if you're living in, in, in on James Clerk Maxwell, who is persuaded that light is unequivocally a wave, a field, then well, okay, you're right, knock yourself out. And then, then Einstein comes along with the notion of photon, that, wave, uh, that, uh, that light travels through space in the form of particles of energy, you're right. But a particle of energy is not a wave. A wave is not a particle of energy, but you're both right. You're simply right from different perspectives. And there is no absolute perspective on the phenomenal world. Yeah, yeah, that's just spot on. And I, and I would actually put a, an exclamation mark, I think, Ellen, some of these views should not only just be refuted, but fourth karma, they should just be destroyed. Um, well, <coughs> I'd like, I would like to be one of the meteors yeah. that destroys the dinosaur of materialism. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Because yeah. I, don't see it, I don't see that it's done any good at all. Yeah. It just made us crude and greedy and voracious and stupid. Yeah, and that, and I want to say, I want to very strongly say, do I believe, therefore, that everybody who holds a materialist view is crude, greedy, and voracious and stupid? Absolutely not. They're extremely smart people, and they're smart, and many of them are very ethical. But I would say they're ethical despite their worldview. Yeah, exactly. And it's also that they're, you know, this is where it's helpful just to briefly interject that people don't exist along one locus of identity; they exist along a spectrum of identity, and so part of their infrared bandwidth. Could in fact be highly materialistic and and uh, reified, and yet you know the ultraviolet may be sensitive and open, and, and so I think it, it, you're you're um, centrifuging out the difference between people and people's views is incredibly important. Um, it's so important. And again, let's just go look at the other other side of the ledger. Are there people who hold very orthodox, one hundred percent accurate Buddhist worldview? Right. You know, they, get, get, yep, yes, 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 oh, yes, yeah. yes, all the way through, <laughs> and they're ethically awful. Yeah, minds totally afflicted with greed and hostility and arrogance and so forth. Sure, you can have a whole a bunch of right beliefs, but does that ever actually get to where you live? And maybe it's yeah. just like like a suitcase full of clothes. These are all my beliefs, but I keep them in the suitcase. I don't let them bother me. Yeah, that's exactly. So right. it goes on both sides. It goes on yes, both sides. Yeah. Totally, Ellen. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for your time. I literally, I had no idea it was as long as like being caught up in an incredibly good movie, Gone with the Wind. Here, I was just, <laughs> I, it was like gone, gone with the brilliance of your mind. I, I apologize. Um, I was just like, oh my gosh, we could just keep going forever. But as we close here, um, dear friend. Um, tell us a little bit of, briefly about how people can um, learn more about your work, about um, uh, what you're working on now, just ways that, that we can cross-pollinate between what I'm doing sure. with my population and audience and then sure. uh, introducing them to your work. Sure, sure. Well, on alanwallace.org, pretty simple, then you can see my itinerary. So this year, this year I've been very busy. Still, I'm still planning to go to Russia and Wales, and Spain, and Israel, and Australia before the year's end. Oh. So teach, leading lots of week-long week retreats, giving lectures here and there. And then every spring, I lead an eight-week retreat, and it's been Dzogchen for the last three years. It will be Dzogchen for the next several years. Uh, eight-week retreats, residential re retreats in Tuscany. And so anybody who'd like to, and of course, all those books out there, a lot of podcasts on the Santa Barbara Institute website are all for free hundreds and hundreds of hours of guided meditations, lectures on seven-point mind training, four immeasurable shamatha, vipassana, natural liberation, mahamudra, and so forth. So I love it when it can be simply free. In terms of projects that I'm working on, it's, what, I've, what I've done is simply try to imagine what's the, great, the most beneficial thing I can imagine doing in this lifetime 
for this world at this time of tremendous crisis in so many ways. And the vision that's come up, it's been in my mind for about 13 years by now, and now it's really manifesting, is create a contemplative environment where people who are very well prepared, strong motivation, pure ethics, good discipline, will come and with all the nurturing that we can provide, with including the physical organic garden and, and orchards, magnificent views, quiet, provide an environment where people can come and practice and achieve shamatha, mm -hmm. come and practice and achieve vipassana, come and practice Dzogchen and set out on the Dzogchen Mahamudra path. And so this we're calling the Center for Contemplative Research in Tuscany, just, just seven, seven kilometers up the hill from a very well-established Buddhist center called the Lama Tsongkhapa Institute. It's about 45 minutes away from Pisa, an hour and 20 minutes away from Florence. Mm. So we purchased the land there, we built, we purchased the house that will be administrative headquarters, and now we're raising funds to build the 18 cabins. Hope to have all of this done and operating, not only with 18 full-time professional contemplatives, being trained contemplatives, and this is not a three-year retreat, a uh -huh. one-year retreat. This is common practice, We'll take care of the visa. If you have no money, we'll try to help. We'll help you out there as much as we can uh, for people to actually simply achieve shamatha vipassana and set out on the path. Okay. And so this is the aspiration. And that already, I think, is pretty well unique. But in addition to that, to bridge the worlds, uh, and that is we will, this is a center of a contemplative research. This research will be conducted by these people who are re receiving years-long professional training from myself, but other Western teachers and Asian teachers, and some of them very, very accomplished in Shamadeva Vipassana and so on. And so not only that, but from the time that we open the doors, we already have scientists lined up, physicists, philosophers, psychologists, neuroscientists, who are very eager in the spirit of respect and wishing to learn from the meditators, not only learn about the meditators' brains and behaviors and what's the impact on meditation, which is what almost all the scientific studies of meditation have been thus far. The meditators are subjects, the professionals are scientists, the scientists study the meditators, the scientists publish papers. We never even learn who the meditators are, you know, because they're just subjects like you know, lab rats and so forth. And there's nothing bad about that. I've, I've participated in such studies, but we're dealing here with two traditions that go back to the sixth century before the common era. Western science goes back to Pythagoras, and back to and then you know to the greats of Greek philosophy and then right on through since then. And the Buddhist tradition goes back to the Buddha and standing on the shoulders of the great contemplatives, the great masters of Samadhi before the Buddha. That's right. So it is really, I think, painfully ethnocentric, Eurocentric, chauvinistic for the scientists to take the soul that only they have the reins on research, even when they're studying people practicing so-called insight meditation, and never ask what insights did you gain that we haven't? What insights have you made that challenge our assumptions? That's right. What do you know that we don't know? This is really kind of a provincialism that we've got to outgrow quickly, because it's ridiculous. Yeah. We have two, five, two, two let's say, 3,000-year-old civilizations here, the contemplative civilization of India, and then China, Japan, Tibet, and so forth, and then our philosophical scientific culture going back to Pythagoras, Aristotle, and so forth, that this should be a, an occasion of mutual respect, of mutual learning, where the first-person met methods have been brought to an enormous degree of sophistication by the contemplatives. But of course, Buddhism has only primitive ma uh, mathematics, basically arithmetic, mm -hmm. basically no more technology than good bridges and prayer wheels, you know, which not a lot of progress there, but then they didn't care. 
That's if you right. got a good prayer wheel, you don't need prayer wheel 2.0 and 3.0. <laughs> you know, one prayer wheel will, will do the job as long as it goes round and round. And so they were satisfied to, in 1,200 years of Tibetan Buddhism, they were satisfied to make essentially no progress at all, technologically. And they didn't know anything more about the physical universe in the 20th century than they did in the 8th. But internally, the contemplatives that have arisen, the great Masidas and so forth, of 1,200 years of Buddhism, in Tibet, I think it was the most—it was the most contemplative society on the planet. So it's time to bring these two together in yeah. mutual respect, cross-cultural, interdisciplinary, where we're bringing professionals meeting professionals, where the scientists will learn from the meditators, not only about them, and the meditators will learn things from the scientists that you would not probably know if you only meditated. Yeah. What's happening in your brain, your physiology, and so forth and so on. So this is the big project. It's what I'm putting my shoulder to the plow for this one, together with a marvelous group of people with diverse skills. So anybody, you, you, you can just get, go onto the website, centerforcontemplativeresearch.org. We have a nice website up now, and that shows what I'm devoting the rest of my life to. Alan, what an amazing uh, contribution. I mean, really, you are the definition of a life well-lived. And, and I have to say, personally, you know, there aren't too many role models um, in my life, but um, you are certainly one of them. What, what you have done, what you continue to do, your dedication, the, the full armamentarium of skills that you bring with you, um, we are all beneficiaries of, of your lifetime work. And all I can say is deep bow of gratitude. Thank you so much for taking the time um, to spend with us. And I have to say, if, if all else fails, you, you'll have a good run at a stand-up comedian, my friend. I have, to refrain, <laughs> I have to refrain from cracking up so many times here. I mean, I, I love, it's amazing, you know, I once read that reality is contacted through tears and laughter, whether it's breaking down or cracking up, um, we can touch reality. And so on every level, even with your humor, you, you, you are pointing towards what's true. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, We'll do everything we can to support you, and may our paths cross many time in this dimension, in the dreamscape, and, and beyond. So thank you, Alan, and best best of luck with your incredible adventures. You're very welcome. I accept your gratitude, and then I turn my head right around, and I just have all the flow of your gratitude go to all my teachers, my lamas, uh, you know, so many of them, and my wonderful Western teachers at Amherst, at Stanford, and so forth. Beautiful. So all your gratitude is really focusing to them. I bow to them with a sense of great gratitude, a sense of privilege that I can pass this on. Yeah, so, well, you're, you're, doing it. you're doing it nobly, my friends. Thank you so much, and, and I'll hope to talk to you again sometime in the future. Be well. Be well. Okay, bye. Okay, bye now. Bye.